Hubhopper Originals. To start your podcast for free, log on to studio.hubhopper.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to Indian Genes. We have a very interesting guest for you today and as an exclusive, this is going to be a two-part episode. The conversation went on for over 4 hours and I'm sure you're going to enjoy each and every moment of it. Our guest today has spent most of his life exploring the relationships among consciousness, mind, body and society. He has found that our understanding of these is outdated and incomplete and encourages audiences to rethink consciousness and unveil a more complete experience of life that also informs solutions to real world challenges including mental health bringing healing to healthcare and upgrading our education he communicates his vision through the lens of the three minds a framework inspired by the philosophy of advaita vedanta that places consciousness at the heart of reality he is both certified in emergency medicine and holds a masters in management he also is the author of michelangelo's medicine and is this a dream two books that you definitely want to get your hands on besides this he also is a columnist for emergency medicine news we now bring you this part 1 of our two part episode with a very special guest none other than dr anup kumar so anup a very big welcome from all of us here at indian genes and i have to thank you first of all for what we've put you through in the last 20 minutes with this recording just so that our listeners know as well uh, we were supposed to speak to anup on a particular platform and we got disconnected we've been trying for about 15 minutes now and uh, i think anup was was kind enough to offer a zoom link and so we are moved our audio to zoom now and hence there's a little bit of from my end there's a little bit of panting here because i'm trying to get all the audio together but anup thank you so much for taking time and talking to us here at indian genes sure sure i'm glad to do it great and uh, for all our listeners here anup i think uh, quite a few of us here have read your books we have been following you online and for those that are probably listening to you for the first time or have heard of you for the first time is there some way you want to or is there something you want to tell them about yourself and what you're currently doing yes so what i'm currently doing is trying to put forth a view of the human being and a view of consciousness mind body and world that is more integrated that is more whole that is more fulfilling and that hopefully brings a sense of ease and clarity to our lives and this is of course in rooted in or built around my experience in emergency medicine as an emergency physician and which I've been doing for I guess almost 15 years now and trying to put some context around that around that kind of more standard view of the human being and flesh that out so to speak so that hopefully we can have a more complete and fulfilling experience of ourselves right and interestingly as an emergency physician uh, transitioning into what we probably will talk about later 
and that will be a lot about the mind mm-hmm. one part of it as far as the physician is concerned is you we are talking about and dealing with the materialistic world the mm-hmm. what is there right in right here mm-hmm. and as an emergency physician was it something about what you were doing or probably the fragility of life that made you think about uh, something to do with minds or was this always inherent in your thoughts and and has come out now it certainly started way before the training in emergency medicine and in my childhood well first of all all of us in our childhood experienced ourselves our identities and our relationship with the world in a particular way that we did not have language for and for me i consider myself fortunate that i was also exposed to the philosophy of advaita vedanta as a child so i had a story to go along with that childhood experience that really validated that way of being in the world and that way of seeing the world which tends to get lost as we get the more adult stories about who we are and what the world is so that really informed me even as i went into medical school and training in emergency medicine and really kind of set the stage to see this contrast between how we talk about study and live as human beings in this world in this society i should say i should say as opposed to in contrast a more full and integrated experience of as you say what is here what's right in front of our eyes exactly and for you those early years while you were probably studying and getting into college or preparing for this did you always think that what you would be getting into now is something that you are doing because you want to wanted to do it and you had other thoughts on branching out somewhere later or did that not occur to you and you wanted to take it as it comes yeah i'd say yes and no in the sense that when i was a kid i would hear many of these many of these talks that i'm given now i would hear in my mind as a kid you know i i could it was almost like a a play that was running um and it wasn't always in my voice it could be the voice of uh one of the teachers that i was around um but and i i wouldn't say always running but it was it was there significantly and it was it was very fascinating to me and very gripping and because it just seemed to be a much much better story about what the heck is going on to put it in a very simple way and so that was there but i didn't formally think about it or imagine that you know in a formal capacity i would be doing something like this but it definitely always seemed to be you know like something that would happen and so when medical school came along you know my the kind of mindset in learning all this was to see how all this kind of fits together so as anatomy was being structured in the mind as physiology and pharmacology and pathology and biochemistry as all of these were structured right the as these stories were kind of being built in the mind it was that other context was always there right that that there is something more than these kinds of structures or there is something that in a way self organizes as this structure and so that that full picture was there and when 
there was no real voice for that. When there was not so much room for that in medicine, that's when I said, okay, I got to start. I couldn't help but start speaking about it in some way. And interestingly, you said as uh, as you were growing up or getting into college, you did have some sort of awareness about uh, the other, let's say the second mind. Uh, I'm just referring to your theory for now and our listeners will get to know a little bit more about it. But mm-hmm. considering that a lot of people listening to us here are college students mm-hmm. and we do here today around us, there's a lot of talk on mental health. Now, right. do you think that it's important at an early age when you're getting into college or in school that if your focus is only on the now and here, then that tends to add more stress because there's no other perspective? I don't know how you see this, but if you are able to develop uh, some form of uh, consciousness, if you call it, which you're aware about, and you have a bro- a little bit of a a broader understanding of things more than you or around you also matter. Yeah, I think so. Let me first say that I think the younger a person is when being exposed to these possibilities, the better actually. Like I don't think one has to reach a certain level of understanding as it's often thought um, to understand this because what we're talking about is fundamentally not theoretical uh, nor intellectual. It, Of course, we're phrasing it that way using language, but that is only because we've already accepted so much language and constructs, and now we have to develop new ones to kind of undo that. So, you know, if a child is kind of exposed to this kind of environment and has a support to say that there are these other views of identity and experience that are perfectly valid, important, um, even wonderful, that are also perfectly consistent with science. Now that child takes in all the subsequent knowledge of the world differently than if they did not have that beginning. So for college students, for example, it's almost like an in-between ground, right? By, by college, we've already received many constructs from the world, many ways of thinking about who we are and what the world is. And yet there's still that enterprising spirit. There's still that rebellious spirit. There's still that spirit that Uh, that, hey, you know, I want to investigate, I I want to figure this out, even if it's not in a formal capacity, that spirit is there in that during that phase of life. So for college students, yes, I would say, you know, remain curious beyond the knowledge that you're receiving in college, right? University is, is supposed to be learning about the universe, so remain curious and, and understand that the constructs and the lessons that you're getting from your professors, that they are valuable and they are also presented to you through the context of the professor. So look for the greater context that may connect all these other contexts. And when you do that, your experience of what this is, of what is happening right now, as you said, that experience changes because it broadens beyond the narrow lenses that we are given. Mm. And at this early age, if you say that it's probably better to, to, to be experiencing this at an earlier age, mm-hmm. practically when a person reaches college or school, we do know about or we hear about the stress. There's mm-hmm. a lot of expectation from, from parents, from society. And, and a lot of us as kids have, have gone through that more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there something that practically can be done 
by someone going through this? Yes. Well, first of all, we're all going through this. Everybody is in this society, in this world, and this planet is going through a similar kind of experience. It happens at different ranges, at different intensities for different periods, but this process is the same, which is of kind of putting this content of what we are and the greater context together. So in a practical sense, one thing is to look for the areas of discomfort in, in one's own life, right? So what are, the, what are the things that trigger me? What are the situations that kind of make me feel unsettled? Because those are direct indicators from our own system that there is something under that, right? So moving towards that, sitting with that mm -hmm. feeling and allowing that tension to arise and perhaps subside, but if not subside, at least allowing, allowing it to arise and seeing what meaning there is in this feeling for me, in this tension, in this discomfort. I think that's, that's something that we're often taught not to do in our society because we take a pill to suppress it or, you know, we go somewhere to forget about it. We take a vacation or there's so many things that we can do, right? Or, or we become very spiritual and we say, okay, I'm just going to just meditate and then this will hopefully go away. But just moving into that feeling of uncertainty, of discomfort, of fear, and remaining with that and seeing where that feeling goes, I think that can be very helpful. Obviously, if it's too much, sometimes we need help from somebody, a friend, a family member, somebody to talk to. But that feeling, that, that using that enterprising spirit for the college students and the young adults out there, using that enterprising spirit to not only move into and investigate that world out there, but the very discomforts that are within ourselves. That's number one. And then number two, what are the tools around that? I'd say there are four broad categories of nutrition, movement, rest, and connection, right? These are very four concrete things that we can use to support this process of moving towards our discomfort and allowing it to unwind. So nutrition is simply looking at the foods that you're eating and seeing there's an association between the foods you eat and the state of the mind. Right? We all know that. We know about comfort food. You have a bad day and want to stuff our face with certain kinds of food. Mm -hmm. So rather than talking about good or bad or, or what is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, simply look at the associations between the foods one is eating and the state of mind, how you feel for the next 30 minutes, six hours, 24 hours. And by noticing this, you will naturally notice the kinds of foods that are associated with the way you want to feel. That's nutrition. Another part of nutrition is looking at what we are consuming, even in terms of information and stories, right? What are the stories that we're hearing? Everybody is telling a story. I'm telling you a story right now. So what are the stories we're hearing that are moving us in the direction we want to move? And what are the stories that are not? Simply, again, paying attention to this. It's not even a matter of saying, I'm going to change this today. It's not about that. As you become more aware of this, your mind will naturally start to gravitate and move away from the things that are not taking you in the direction that works for you. So that's nutrition. Then movement, a very simple thing is to move the body through its entire range of movement. So every joint, you know, the fingers, the wrists, the neck, the jaw, everything, every single joint all the way down to the toes. Most joints, we don't nearly use their full range of motion. Even in sports, with most sports, you're not going to use the full range of motion of all your joints. 
So every morning and every evening, for example, if you simply take all your joints to their full range of motion, from the second mind perspective, what we're calling the body itself is a representation of the mind. So this will also help to kind of loosen that mind and make it more pliable and more integrative. So that's movement. And of course, movement also pertains to emotion and thought. What are your ideas? As a young adult, you will have amazing ideas that the world needs to hear, right? What are your ideas? Share them, get feedback from others, modify them. What are the feelings, the emotions that are within us, right? That the society might be saying not to express or that are not welcome, right? Finding a way to express those through journaling, through talking to someone. This is movement. So we have nutrition, movement, then we have rest, right? Rest is, it's not just sleeping. You can't always maybe get as much sleep as you want, perhaps. But rest is simply learning how to let go of that mind, right? And this, this pairs with connection as well. So when we don't need the body, we set it aside, right? We, we lay it down at night, for example. Similarly, when we don't need the personal mind, can we lay it down? Can we lay it aside? We surely can, but there's no talk about this generally in society. The mind is, the personal mind is a kind of equipment that we use. So when we don't need it, we should develop that skill to simply set it aside. So this is the act of rest, right? Or the non-act of rest, which is learning to set the body aside and the mind aside. And naturally, when we do these, we will result in a deeper or the deepest kind of connection connection with the deepest levels of identity. But beyond that, of course, connection at the level of others, connecting with friends, connecting with family. Another one is connecting with the planet, being in nature, right? Getting your bare feet in the sand or in the water or in the mud, this mm -hmm. kind of connection too. So these are four very concrete things that anyone can do, nutrition, movement, rest, connection, that will kind of take us out of the societal thinking about how things are, how things should be, and we'll start to open that doorway to our own natural intelligence that everyone has, and also help us face the adversity, the uncertainty, the fears that are within us, and thereby help them to unwind. And this is really what we're talking about when we say something like mental health, for example, right? This, this phrase, mental health, I'm not really a fan of it because mental pertains to mind, and in my opinion, in our society, for the most part, we don't know what the mind is. So mental health becomes this very nebulous term that seems to be parallel to mental illness. And they kind of give each other life when I think we don't really know what we're talking about. So better to think about our own clarity, our own sense of ease, and what's working for us through nutrition, movement, rest, connection, and meeting the uncertainty in our lives. Mm. Uh, listening to you, uh, listening to this from you, uh, Anup, is is definitely definitely makes it easier to understand with this particular framework. And what would you say is the reason that we do not have this kind of an explanation or framework in the academics or while we're growing up or within schools and colleges itself? Because if this is going to have the kind of impact that it is for all our listeners right now, and it, it's making so much sense, then why do you think it's not part of mainstream? And the moment we start talking about this, it gets a little bit edgy. Well, I think it's because a lot of the mainstream story is about making the individual better, 
right? It's about the individual looking mm-hmm. better, about the individual being stronger, about the individual being smarter, about the individual having more money, having a bigger house, about the individual making themselves better in so many ways. And so when you have a story that says, well, this individual that we are is a part of what we are. And Mm -hmm. there is this greater context of identity beyond the individual that is still part of who we are, that doesn't make us reject the individual, but that almost holds the individual, right? That, that, That comforts and contextualizes and lets this individual be and function. And there is a great release in that. And there's a great amount of acceptance in that. And that, unfortunately, is not the story because that is not going to sell, um, what's it called? These name brand clothes. It's not Mm going to sell very expensive cars. It's not going to sell makeup. It's not going to sell the most expensive schools with the fanciest degrees. Right. All of these can be enjoyed and all of these can be used, but when they're decontextualized, they can become harmful. And I think that's why we are seeing this discrepancy between the story that I'm telling you and many people are saying in different ways and what may be the most common kind of mass marketing story that we see in society. Right. Very interesting because when you talk about the three minds or the framework of the three minds i think we've we've just got into the first mind as you described it would you want to continue down to the second and third mind as well sure yeah so this first mind is the experience of the boundary to narrow it down to make it its most essential characteristic and i know that can sound abstract but when you look at the world around you you will see a world of boundaries, right? At least if you are going by the most popular educational system in the world, the most popular kind of thinking in the world, you will tend to see a world of boundaries. We may not notice the boundaries because we don't talk about boundaries, but what we notice are things, right? Mm. We notice the picture in front of us. We notice the bed. You might notice the car. You might notice your foot if you look down. Right? So what we notice are things. Well, how are things defined? They're defined by boundaries. If there is no boundary, you cannot see a thing. You cannot distinguish a thing from the space around it without a boundary. So everything that we experience, including the way we experience ourselves, mostly in the society as we are taught, is the experience of boundaries. And you can see this. Everybody can kind of do a self-check in our own experience right now. Just feel what it feels like to be you, right? Where is the sense of identity? Where is the sense of boundary? Is a sense of identity associated with the body? Is it lower in the body? Is it in the mid region? When we say I, very often we put our hands on our chest. Is that where we feel I? Is I in and around the head or maybe above the head? Where is the sense of identity? Wherever it is, you will see that there's some kind of boundary associated with it, because only when there is a boundary can we even distinguish a localized identity. And what I submit to you, to everyone listening, is that the very reason you perceive all the things around you as you look around in the room or in the outside environment where you are, the very reason 
you perceive those things is because your own identity is matching that level of boundary. The same level of boundary one experiences as oneself is reflected in our perception of the world. This is a simply a, simply a natural function of the mind. And this mm. is the first mind world. This is the world mostly, this is the world of science. This is the world of particularization. This is the world of things. This is the world of manyness and multiplicity. And this is the world, at least how it's usually used, it's the world of the material, where materials are scarce because there are only so many things, right? There's so many, only so many valuable things. So in this view, there's the scarcity is the standard worldview. There are many things, but the things that we really need, there's not enough of it in the world. This goes along with the same first mind view. And furthermore, I have to try to hoard as much of this as I can, because if I don't, then I may not survive because after all, I myself am finite and bound. And so my own life depends on this. So this whole world emerges. This world is interpreted based on this first mind view. And like I said, most science, economics, everything subscribes to this first mind view. Now, the second mind view is then when this sense of boundary starts to, let's say, diminish, delocalize, it becomes translucent, it becomes porous, it becomes malleable, all of these things. So just for example, just think back to the water droplet. It's a very discreet water droplet, right? Yes, it is small, but it's very discreet. We can see the kind of bubble, we can see the boundary around it. But now imagine that the temperature starts to really warm up, right? Or it becomes humid. And this water bubble or this water droplet starts to evaporate, right? What happens in the moments that this is evaporating? That boundary is diminishing, right? That distinct boundary starts to disappear until all of a sudden the droplet is no more. Now, is the droplet no more? No, of course not. It's just delocalized. That boundary has shifted. So mm -hmm. similarly, when you and I, when all of us, when this sense of boundary around the identity, when this starts to shift, when it becomes lighter, when it becomes more easeful, when it becomes a range or a zone at, rather than a particular concrete line, when it becomes something that no longer encapsulates us, but something that we can choose, something that we can express through, now all of a sudden, the, that very experience is reflected in the world as a different world. That all the things you see around you, all the objects you see around you, the extent to which one's own boundary shifts, that is the extent to which the boundary of these objects shifts because they are not independent objects out there. They are in relation to the subject that is perceiving. So as the subject changes, so does the object change. And this we're arriving at in neuroscience and physics, we're arriving at this understanding slowly. So this is the world of the second mind in which identity is not strictly of the individual, but identity is its own independent entity. And it is identity itself, what we might call this deeper consciousness, right? It is this consciousness itself with dif which differentiates as the world of perception and as the one who is perceiving it. And this is why 
there's so much confusion about consciousness in our world because consciousness is thought of as particular. It is thought of as mine or yours or his or theirs. And it's this little bubble that's floating around near the head or, you know, from the brain. If you look in cartoons, they always yeah. show thinking as these bubbles. It starts with a thought bubble. It's a thought bubble, right? So what we're doing is training everybody in this physicalist perspective, saying that, hey, you know, the brain and the body is what's real. And sometimes you have these clouds that the brain creates, right? Though we have, we have no science to say that the brain creates mind because mind itself is not a scientific entity, right? So we have no science that says it, but this is what we implicitly teach around the world. And so we believe that consciousness is personal, even though there is a more fundamental nature itself, which differentiates and localizes as this individual consciousness. And the second mind view, the second mind identity recognizes itself to be of this nature of non-local consciousness. And the experience of that as reflected through the first mind, as reflected through the individual is the experience of ease, the experience of openness, the experience of lightness, the experience of clarity, the experience of choice, the experience of freedom, you know, all the things that we talk about as good, you know, very, in a very vague mm. sense, these are all associated with recognizing and identifying as our deeper identity without forgetting or completely dissociating from, of course, the individual personality that is functioning in the world. So all this all is... The Sorry. All the things we think of as good and in certain cases uh, socially are bad as well because the, the yeah. two sides of that emotion, right? So you can talk about addiction, you can talk about sex, you can talk about pleasure, and then it's the same. Yes, and if you look at most addiction, what we're trying to do through addiction is kind of escape this boundary, right? So why is an, and by the way, addiction is, is not just certain kinds of drugs. Food is addiction, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We, can, we can rethink how we think about addiction. Experience is an addiction. I have to experience something. You know, I'm restless and I want to experience something. I don't even know what it is. I'm just going to go for a drive and experience something, right? That, there's an addiction to experience. That's the, that's the broadest kind of addiction we can say a human could have. But more specific types of experiences that are addictions, what we're trying to do is escape this confine or escape some particular event that happened in the past or escape mm -hmm. some concept. These are all tendencies and characteristics of boundaries. These are all reflection of the boundary. So this is why stepping back, I'm sure in psychology, they talk about stepping back or, or taking a metacognitive view, right, of the events. What this does is allows some relaxation and allows the sense of threat that the individual identity is under attack to kind of go away and allows that identity to relax and start to recognize itself more clearly. So even in the, the sciences that we have, we're starting to recognize the importance of it, but it hasn't, not, it hasn't yet connected with a fundamental view of the world and with social practices. Mm. So even in the case, the cases you mentioned, like addiction, it's important to see that we're ta still talking about the same fundamental phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So we got a clear understanding on the first and the second mind. Right. Uh, do you want to take us through the third mind? Yes. The third mind is the one that is probably 
impossible to describe with language because with the second mind, even if it may seem, let's say, less common or even if it may seem unusual, we can contrast it with the first mind by talking about localization and delocalization, right? I talked about the, the droplet as kind of representing the first mind world. And then we have an idea about vapor, right? Even though you can't hold uh, a distinct picture with a particular boundary of vapor in your mind or air, if you try to picture air, you can't really picture it. Or if you try mm -hmm. to picture space, you can't picture space without picturing objects, right? Modifications of space or interlocutors within space. So just like we can draw this contrast between the first mind and the second mind, we're not able to do that with the third mind. What the third mind is, is the potential for these experiences. That's the best way we can say it. The potential that expresses as what is called in spirituality, what is called as illumination, what is called as non-local consciousness, what is, what is called as the fundamental nature of things, that which we can call non-local. How does it become non-local? What does it even mean to be non-local, right? This still has some reference to space. So when we take off all of these references to the individual, to the non-local, this is what I'm referring to as the third mind. And mm. this, I should also add, this is not something that is something really of benefit in society, right? I'm including it simply for completeness, for those people who might want to know, might want to hear, I think that is important for completeness to say that there is this third mind, this, let's say, it's essential nature, which then shows itself as this non-locality, this consciousness, and its more particular forms as the first mind. Mm. Uh, that's, that's super interesting. And if we do add time as a dimension here just because we want to kind of look at this in some some with, with some perception like you said where we can understand then you've your first mind second mind and third mind kind of takes us from where we are to where we were and if we play that in reverse then does that make sense that if it was the third mind at the beginning it was then the second mind and it is now the first mind where we are if you talk about how this progressively happened? I think if we put it in the frames of time, we could say that. I don't think that's an accurate view. In my view, the third mind, the second mind, and the first mind are all here right now. Mm -hmm. And within this, when we, when we kind of interject the story of time, right, and the, the, the sequence of time, remember, time can only happen when there is a localization of identity. Right. So when when I take myself to be a particular thing, you take yourself to be a particular thing. Now, what we do is we now see the world as things, right, rather than the world as, let's say, potential or as consciousness. And now when we shift our attention from one thing to the other to the other, we get the experience of time. Right. This sequential shifting of attention is what we call time at the individual level. And of course, mm -hmm. for the world as a whole, for our planet as a whole, that attention is represented through the movement of the sun, right? Because mm -hmm. we, we base our days on the relationship between earth and sun. We base our years on the relationship between earth and sun. But that's just a particular kind of earth time because our attention is 
attending to the movement of the sun and the earth in a particular way, that's how we establish our default units of time. But that doesn't mean that that's fundamental. If we go to a deeper level and ask, well, what is the sun? Mm. Right? What is the world? What am I? Now, if we go to a deeper nature, an undifferentiated nature, now, if that sequence isn't there, if that localization isn't there, now we're moving to something that will be called timelessness or eternity. And that is this second mind. The second mind, the experience is one of, let's say, timelessness, which is not really saying anything. It's just telling you what it's not, right? Or mm -hmm. eternity. That, that sense of the passage of time is not there. There can still be qualitative movements, which is why there is still this third mind, why still leave room for this third mind. But it is not nearly like the degree of motion that is perceived in the first mind world. So to sum it up, the first mind, second mind, and third mind are here right now. When seen through the lens of time and the first mind, they spread out in terms of chronology. When seen through the second mind, they move towards timelessness. And when seen as the third mind, it is absolute eternity. If I could just ask you something about the first mind, and you, we were mm. talking about the first mind where we said that that's mm -hmm. the world that is perceived as a series of, let's say, discrete objects and events mm -hmm. external to who we are. Now, that particular first world has been very beneficial as far as technology. Mm -hmm. Everything we talk about progress, we were speaking about that earlier. Mm -hmm. Or, for example, we spoke about the, uh, the current pandemic and a vaccine, for example. The vaccine is a result of the first mind thinking or first mind in action, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you, or how do you think a, a particular person balances this mm -hmm. or needs to balance between uh, the, the third mind is definitely potential and then you can even connect that with uh, innovation and inspiration mm -hmm. uh, with the second mind. Mm -hmm. But what would your, uh, what is your thought on where is this balance between first and second mind? Right. So, you know, the vaccine and all the other inventions and creations that we've made as a species, I would not say that these are all simply creations of the first mind. Before, with the Industrial Revolution, I said that to kind of represent this first mind, to show what this first mind is, it's helpful to think of it this way. But remember what I said subsequently, which is the first, second, and third mind are all here. And they are not three minds. They're three minds for the purposes of understanding. But there's, in a sense, we can say there's only one thing going on here that it can be appreciated through three different lenses. And so the creativity that goes into, let's say, creating a vaccine or the creativity that goes into seeing mathematics in a new way or understanding physics in a new way, that does not come from the first mind. We only appreciate it through the first mind. And we may, if we don't, if we're not aware of these three minds, we may believe that, yes, it is this brain that somehow fired in a particular way that created this thought that then came into my, that's our, that's our societal story. That's our first mind story about what happened. But it doesn't mean that that is actually what's happening. You know, so a lot of people say we have so much, we've discovered so much, we've done so much with science and, you know, how can we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't minimize that. And what I say is two things. Number one, even this science is a product of consciousness. The science that we're doing is happening in consciousness. It is happening as modifications of consciousness. 
So it is not that there is some other thing outside of consciousness that is then doing science. And so we have to value that separately. No, the beauty of consciousness itself is that it functions also through science, also through philosophy, also through uh, opposing these ideas. All of these are possible, right? And the second thing is, yes, we are very advanced in a way, but compared to what, right? We, the societal story, the way we're told to think is like, well, you know, look at those cavemen over there, right? Look at those Neanderthals over there, right? They didn't have technology. They didn't have all this, but look at everything that we have. And what I would say is, well, look at how many people are starving in our world, right? Mm. I know I have much more food than I need to eat on any day in, in 45 minutes from now, from now, I can have Chinese food. I can have pizza. I can have Japanese food. I can have food from pretty much anywhere in the world in 45 minutes at my door, right? And yet, mm. if I go a few miles down the road, I'll find many people who cannot eat, who, do, who won't be able to get their next meal. So are we really advanced, right? I have many rooms in my house. And I know down the street, there'll be people who don't have a room that they can sleep in tonight. Are we really advanced, right? We have, you know, I, I drive, I tell many people this, I drive sometimes and I see these uh I guess, telephone poles and energy lines and these, these lines, these wires that are extending across them, right? And a storm comes and one falls down and we don't have power for a while. And I'm thinking, is this 2021? Like, are we really mm. still having cables transmitting energy held up by wooden poles in one of the most supposedly advanced nations in the country? Like, this is, this is advancement. So we need to keep in mind when we talk about advanced we have been kind of taught to think of ourselves as advanced. And in a sense, surely we are advanced. I'm, I'm not denying that, but let's keep some context here. In a sense, we are very barbaric when it comes to caring for the people of the world. We're not advanced. We can do it. We do have the technology to do it, but we are not doing it. So this means becoming more aware of the second mind, because after all, when we're talking about the second mind, what are we talking about? We're talking about a more unified identity, right? Not unified in terms of making everybody the same, but recognizing that there is a sameness that underlies this multiplicity. So all of these three are here. And when we access this deeper well of creativity, I think these are the kinds of stories that we can tell that will really catapult us to becoming an advanced civilization. And this does say a lot about people jumping between scientific truth and let's say fundamental or universal truth because scientifically yes the vaccine is the cure for now but as cited before as well if if a nuclear bomb does go out and we have nuclear war and all of us are not here anymore then the whole scientific revolution was was not the truth and it could be another truth right and and it depends like what kind of truth are we talking about it's what are the assumptions that make up our foundation from which we are judging truth, right? Mm. Okay, the world, is the world is multiple, the world is many, this is my truth. Now, how do I get from here to there faster? Okay, you know, then certain things are, are gone out the window. For example, uh, you know, at some time we thought supersonic travel was not possible. Now, most people would say superluminal travel is not possible. Why? Because we believe in this fundamentally uh, particulate world, this world of manyness. And from that level, yes, that statement will be truth. But if you change the assumption 
that which was truth becomes falsehood. Because mm. if there is a, for example, if there is something like a second mind, right? And second mind meaning not just, not just something that is fundamental and underlying the world of multiplicity, not just that. But the reason I'm saying mind is because then we directly have access to it. I don't need some intermediary to access this. That's, that's why we're saying second mind and not just something, you know, a unified field or a unified area, right? So if there is something like the second mind, now all of a sudden to go from one place to the other, is it, do we have to go through the medium of how we see light, right? Do, do we have to go through the medium of manyness? I don't think so. We don't necessarily have to. And so if we assume that now, all of a sudden, the idea of superluminal travel is not only possible, but it, it becomes very tangible, right? If one can see the connection between the individual mind and the second mind. So truth is relative to our assumptions and our assumptions are often relative to our perception and our perception is directly dependent on the sense of identity. Mm. And for perception, like you were mentioning that currently you have all the three minds right here, right now. Was there ever a time or do you ever envision a time where if we go back to human beings as we evolve, when do you think this, this division between this hard border start coming up? So I don't think of it in terms of, I see what you're saying. I think you're talking about the story of evolution and how, how, you know, we went from simpler creatures to then, let's say, um, bacteria to plants and animals and evolved into humans. I think that's the way you're talking about it. Yeah. Uh, I think that is a very, that is one kind of story. That is also a very Earth-centric story. We know now that there are billions upon billions of inhabitable planets in the universe, right? If even we're talking about a universe, there are billions upon billions of inhabitable planets. Furthermore, we know now that if you look at the government talking about unidentified aerial phenomena, we know that there are likely more intelligent beings elsewhere in even our galaxy, probably, right? This is now the US government is talking about it. Many foreign governments are talking about it. So I think it would take a tremendous amount of ignorance and arrogance, a very unique combination of ignorance and arrogance to say that we are alone in this universe or that we are even the most intelligent or that we are even close to being the most intelligent kind of living being in the universe. So I'm I'm saying this because I want to I want to broaden the context far beyond where the usual conversation happens. Mm. I don't think that consciousness evolved only on earth. I don't think that consciousness, you know, appeared somehow from the third mind at some point and evolved linearly on earth. No, I think there are likely innumerable civilizations, innumerable living beings all over the universe. And so it, it's not, I'm not talking about one timeline. And what I would rather say is that consciousness itself evolves through localizing, right? We all localize or compartmentalize, don't we? Like when we, when we go to work, we compartmentalize a certain part of the personality and 
that's so I bring the physician part mostly at work. It's still informed by my other knowledge, but that physician aspect is is accentuated, right? So that is the that is the compartmentalizing that happens that is useful, right? When I go somewhere else, when I'm with my son, I bring out that fatherly side more, right? So we all compartmentalize and we are simply reflections of what consciousness is doing. If we may, if we may kind of personalize it in that way, just like in a dream where the mind compartmentalizes itself or localizes itself or dissociates within itself as an individual, as a thing, as the tick-tock, tick-tock of time, as the experience of space between objects. What is this all? This is all sim simply compartmentalizing within the mind, right? Boundaries within the mind. Similarly, this second mind itself is, we can say, drawing lines within itself, enfolding upon itself to create these experiences of the first mind of individuality, looking itself as it were, looking at itself as it were, through many eyes, many lenses, many planets, many civilizations. So this goes beyond the idea of this linear evolution of time, and it simply moves towards a view of the qualitative evolution of consciousness. Excellent. And this does time with your book. Is this a dream where you spoke on the reflections of the awakening mind and you were just talking about the inward looking reflection of, of the second mind mm -hmm. is that something that you would want to talk to us about yeah so the book was it's it's exactly what the subtitle says it's a series of reflections and i wrote it so that someone who is curious and open-minded about their experience about the experience you, whoever's listening now, the experience that you're having now of being somebody who's hearing some words and there's a setting around you and you came from doing something else a few moments ago and maybe a few moments from now you'll be doing something else and then later you'll have some food, you may use a restroom, you'll go to sleep, right? Something will happen, we don't know really, and then in the morning there'll be another experience and some some kind of repetition, right? If you're curious about this experience, and then of course, within that, a smaller frame is all the stories about this that we've been given, right? So if you're mm -hmm. curious about these stories and how they relate to your experience and your experience of the world, then the book is kind of designed for that kind of mind. Um, it's in three parts. The first part is you're not who you think you are. The second part is the world is not what you think it is. And the third part is the many masks of non-duality, right? Non-duality is very popular now. And well, those, are, those are three powerful, uh, those are three powerful subjects. Yeah. And, and really encompasses, if you dive into these reflections or, or be with these reflections, um, they may open up some new insights. And that's really the, the point of the book. It's a short book. Um, it's, it's, um, it doesn't take necessarily, it's not necessarily pro-spiritual, although that's how it would often be categorized, and it's not pro-science, um, it's not anti-science, and nor anti-spiritual, but it just seeks to engage you as a hu human being, and mm. to see where it might lead you. 
Right. And the title of the book itself, you would have had a lot of questions on that because that is the question, right? Which yeah. a lot of us who are non-experts talk about. Yeah. We hear about it commonly. I mean, is this a dream? Are we are we speaking in a dream right now to each other? Yeah. And how would we know? Yeah, this is the question. And this is the, like I said, that's that's why the book's title is, Is This a Dream? And not This Is a Dream. Because... Mm. I think everybody has to arrive at their own answer depending on how they see what a dream is, how they define a dream. And the word this, is this a dream? What does the word this actually refer to? You know, mm. these are these are pregnant questions. Uh, the answer to which is many worlds of experience. So I think, is this a dream is the question and is this a dream is the answer. Uh, mm-hmm. I could answer it in, in my own way, but I, I don't know that, that that's really helpful. We know a few things. We know that mm-hmm. in a dream, there is a dreaming mind. And we know that this amazing dreaming mind appears as everything in this dream, right? It appears as the hammer that falls on the toe in the dream. And it appears as the toe that really, really hurts, right? It appears as the space between the hammer and the toe where the hammer falls through this space in which there's no pain on the toe. And only at the very instant that the hammer contacts the toe where the boundary of the hammer and the boundary of the toe kiss, this is the instant of pain, right? We know all this. This is, and this is all the mind doing this. We know Mm. that the second it takes for the hammer to fall frame by frame, tick, tock, tick, talk, falling. We know that mm. that itself is the mind. We know that the doctor that comes to help you treat that toe is the mind. We know that the enemy who threw the hammer on it's your the mind. is the mind. We mm. know that you and the uh, your enemy are enemies. You and the doctor are friends. The friendship and the hostility is also the mind, Right. We know that the moment you were born into that dream is the mind. We know that the moment that that body dies in the dream is the mind. So all this to say, furthermore, we know that within the dream, the doctor knows he's not you. You know you're not the doctor. The enemy knows he's not you. You know you're not the enemy. Enemy knows he's not the doctor. The three are distinctly different. They will swear their life on it. We are different. We are not the same how dare you? You're not as educated as me, right? How dare you? You're not as, as adventurous as me, right? We know this too is the mind. So equipped with all this, if we simply translate that to this experience and we say, is this the mind or is this a dream? I think to me, that is not enough. That will leave us in a, there's so much to know kind of phase. The next phase is to analyze this experience right now in this, what we call this waking state of consciousness. Mm. Here now, an analysis has to be done. We've analyzed the dream, but now analyze this experience. What is the sense of identity here? Where does it come from? What are its roots? How does it change during the day? How is it associated with perception, right? As attention becomes refined, as the individual mind becomes more still, as it gains insight into these, and as these boundaries fall, then there will be much more, if we want to use a, um, a more popular way of talking about it and looking at it, there will be much more data. There will be a mm. lot more 
um, ideas and information and knowledge on which to now think about dreams. And finally, of course, you can't leave out sleep. Mm. What is the nature of sleep? What happens in sleep? Right? Not just the waking experiences definition and understanding of sleep. This is what we think of as, as knowledge of sleep today. Right? We're mm. trying to understand sleep. So we put somebody um, we, in a sleep lab. Maybe we do an MRI while they're sleeping. And all we understand then is the waking experience of the sleeping experience, right? Somebody who's awake is telling about sleep, right? Mm. That's like, that's like good telling us about evil or like mm. water telling us about a desert, right? They're mm. diametrically opposite experiences. So the waking understanding of sleep is quite different from what sleep itself is, what I guess what most people would call phenomenology or phenomenological experience. Mm. So in inquiring into these, which is what the purpose of the book is, in inquiring into our experience right now, without any intermediaries, without any machines, by looking into this experience right now, what can we understand about these states of awareness? And then make our own determination as to whether this is a dream. Mm. And you said, look into what we are doing right now. And we have probably memory on our side because we tend to think we remember and there is some continuity to it as opposed to, uh, I'm talking about myself, if I'm dreaming, I don't seem to be conscious about memory in a dream. Right. So the, the frames or the, the units of consciousness, we might say, are different. Whereas in a dream, you're functioning more and more in, within a narrower frame, right? It might be a few seconds, for example, that we're functioning. Right. Whereas here, we still might be, depending on, depending on the mind, it's different for each person. But we're still functioning within a certain amount of frame. But then we have these subunits of experience, which we call the past, or these subunits of experience that we might call the future that we then stack linearly in a cognitive method. We stack linearly these subunits of experience and say, these units of experience actually happened before this current experience. And we kind of create this timeline. So the fundamental experience is not different, but you're right that the waking experience is structured differently in that we create subunits. And because of the story we're told, Remember, in, in, in dreams, we don't necessarily subscribe to the stories, which is why in a dream you can fly and it won't be strange at all, right? Mm-hmm. And in a dream, you might be able to jump higher than trees and it won't be strange at all because we don't subscribe to the waking stories necessarily in the dream. We may or we may not. But in the waking state, we've been told a particular story and all the adults in our lives when we were kids acted in a particular way. That told us, yes, you know, now imagine these subunits of time, these substructures, and now place them linearly. And now what you will experience is a past. And in some cases, you will experience a future. And now you Mm -hmm. can kind of stretch this out and live your life within this framework. But that story falls away in the dream. So we don't necessarily experience that. Mm. And I guess even in your waking state, if a person or any person can gain some control, or some kind of agency over their mind, first of all, being aware of it, and then knowing that it could materialize into some action that has happened. And I'm just speaking about myself and my mm-hmm. conversation with you right now, Anu, because uh, 
so I've been reading your books and I'm thinking as we are talking because I've been reading your books and I've been following you online and and mm-hmm. I I wrote your name down somewhere and I said you know I just hope one day uh, I get a chance to talk to you or even message you mm-hmm. so currently for me this itself could be a dream compared to the first time I heard you or listened to you I did not I didn't really envision this happening but mm-hmm. as I sit here talking to you it is happening and in some time I'm going to be switching off and say wow did that actually happen right right exactly and and what you're talking about is how we structure consciousness you know who's to say that what we're experiencing now is something that is only happening now right if we go beyond the framework of linear time how do we know that these what we're calling segments of experience right every everything that we call a unit of time or past present future these are segments of experience and how do we know that these segments of experience are linear if we step outside of the story of time that we're given right maybe mm. these segments are concurrent and maybe when the identity identifies in a particular way then the mind processes them linearly and what we see is a smooth what we call a smooth experience right like in a movie where the editor might clip sometimes i make i make videos right where i use a program and i clip the timeline and i paste it somewhere else and when i watch the final product there's no clipping there's just linearity it goes from past present future but of course i know that the whole thing is clipped and everybody watching intellectually understands that it's clipped even if their experience and my experience is that one of one seamless experience so when you had that thought right who's to say that you having that thought was in the past who's to say that what is happening now is in the future compared to that past why can't mm-hmm. they both be concurrent and simply when the identity shifts and selects a particular timeline that's where it's experienced and we experience linearity only if that is the dominant story or the configuration of that mind mm and bringing this all together i think the intersection of consciousness science uh, healing and offering a more complete foundation for healthcare in your book uh, second mind medicine would you want to tell us how this came about and and uh, it looks like this is a book for the future yes i think you may be referring to michelangelo's medicine correct michelangelo's medicine that was the that was the first book i wrote in my i think i started no i it was after my training in emergency medicine it was in my first couple years out mm. yes i think the the question to me is how can we have a more complete view of the human being right from the from the perspective of healthcare how can we have a more complete view of the human being that doesn't contradict all the knowledge that we have right because if there's so much that we do know within a particular lens there's much that we do know and we need to be able to use that because that is how we think that is what we value and so the answer to that is looking at this difference between the human being and the human body when we're talking about healing what we're talking about of course healing comes from word the, the word whole and we're talking about being more whole feeling more complete which as we talked about earlier is about recognizing ourselves beyond the boundary of the first mind this is what brings the sense of healing that sense of ease that sense of clarity right and that mm. integration or that moving beyond boundaries is also even in the particular sense if you look at a cut 
what are we talking about? We're talking about bringing the two boundaries and integrating that cut, that laceration, so that it's not two anymore. It brings it and unifies it. If we talk about something like congestive heart failure, where there's a dysfunction of a particular chamber of the heart, right? Let's say one of the ventricles is not receiving blood properly or not able to pump out enough blood, right? There is a disintegration between that ventricle and the rest, the other chambers of the heart. So again, integrating, going beyond that boundary and integrating as the whole organ, then the heart integrating with the whole cardiac system, sorry, the cardiovascular system. The cardiovascular system being an integrative part of all the organ systems and the organ systems ultimately being an aspect of this individual, but then we cannot stop there. The individual being a part of the community, the community being a part of the world at large. And finally, ultimately, we will come to this boundary where we're talking about the living and the non-living, right? Matter and consciousness, right? The dead mm -hmm. and the alive, the inanimate and the animate. And even this superimposition, we will have to, if not discard, at least see through. And so coming back to anatomy, when we're talking about seeing the whole human being, we have to see not only the body, not only the the um, the organs and the cells and the molecules and then the the atoms, subatomic particles, not just these things, but then we have to see the mind as fundamental, as a fundamental part of our anatomy, right? The anatomy that we see evolves, right? The anatomy that that was seen by Galen is not the same anatomy that we have today because we have a finer knowledge of anatomy, right? Mm -hmm. At a finer level, what we call chemistry is anatomy at a fine level. What we call histology is anatomy at a fine level. What we call physics is anatomy, we can say, if we're talking about the physics of the human body, we're talking about the anatomy of the human being at a fine level. So, in talking about the human being, we have to complete our understanding of anatomy and incorporate mind. If our knowledge of anatomy has always evolved, then we are at a time period now where the mind as anatomy needs to be integrated. And that will demand us looking at our how we divide the mind. Sorry, that will demand that we look at how we divide mind and body. In doing this, we can have a more complete picture, which is why I call it the five bodies, where we not only look at the physical body, but we look at the mental body, the energetic body, the informational body, and consciousness itself as the fifth body. When we not necessarily define, but when we represent ourselves this way, we're actually seeing the whole human being rather than just the physical body, one-fifth. And therefore, naturally, healing will be more complete. If we want to talk about diagnosis, it'll be true diagnosis in the sense diagnosis is diagnosis. It is gnosis between two. It is a knowledge and a movement between the shores of two people. That is what diagnosis literally means. That is its source. Mm. And so it has to involve, it has to include a complete notion of being human. When we do this, healing will be much more commonplace than it is today. And do you think that psychedelics, where we are reading a lot about how that does probably help us dissolve this boundary that we were talking about earlier between the body and the mind. Mm -hmm. Do you think is one way that is interesting and should be looked at? Absolutely. I think it is interesting and I think it should be looked at. I think what psychedelics are doing is, like you said, they're dissolving these previous constructs, 
right? Both intellectual constructs and experiential constructs. Experientially, they're starting to crack this boundary of the first mind. And intellectually, it's showing us that what we are, our identity and our capabilities are much more than what we have generally been taught by the first mind educational system. So absolutely, we should look at it. It is inevitable that we're going to get caught up in such a thing because it is showing us more of what we are, right? Anybody that says, hey, look, this may be what you thought was going on about you, what you thought you were. And it's not that that's wrong, but in fact, that's radically incomplete. Here's here's the rest of the picture. Anybody's going to say, wow, that is tremendously interesting. And I want to get in on that, right? At the same time, let us not forget that what psychedelics unleash, what they open up are windows into ourselves that are already present, right? That's why I say the first, second, and third mind are here now, and they've always been here now. Right. So whatever can be done through that, ultimately, we also have to see that we can investigate this ourselves. So, yes, let's use them responsibly to unlock new understandings. It has to be done in safe ways. It has to be done with people who know what they're doing. Of course, all this is important. It can also open up experiences that are incredibly difficult to process which is also exactly what happens when there's a movement, a sudden movement from the first mind to the second mind. A tremendous amount of experience can come flooding through that's difficult to integrate. So it's not just something that is you know, great and wonderful. As great and wonderful things tend to be, this too can also cause disorientation and difficulty. So let's use it responsibly as a tool, as an indicator of what is possible and let us continue beyond that also to integrate ourselves. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that because in the world today or in our fast-moving world where all of us are looking for hacks on the shorter cut, you were talking earlier when you started about Advaita Vedanta and that uh, we, we get into yoga and spiritual practices which, mm-hmm. which take a lot of uh, hard work. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of time. But... Mm-hmm. The shorter cut here, as far as psychedelics is concerned, and I'm talking about the psychedelic experience and probably uh, reaching, I don't know if it is the same, uh, the same reality or the same consciousness. So I agree with you totally that I think that we, we need to be careful with what we are looking for before we start searching, right? Right. It's, and even when we talk about the same consciousness, you know, there, there's so many flavors, there's so many ranges, there's so many depths. Even when I say second mind, second mind, Sounds like one thing, but there's a tremendous range, right? In in drawing the three minds, what it draws is an overall comprehensive sketch. And so naturally, any one of these ranges is going to be very expansive. There's so much to experience even within one of these ranges. So similarly, psychedelics, what they do is open up a window, very simply opens up a window to what is possible and what is happening. So Anup, uh, a few months ago, we spoke to Bernardo Castro. Mm-hmm. And he specifically spoke about consciousness being fundamentally where everything else happens in rather than everything happening through it. Mm-hmm. Is From what I could hear you speaking about earlier when you spoke about uh, materialism or materials that come into force, mm-hmm. is that your thought as well? Yes, I would also put it similarly. It's It's what it happens in, what it happens through, also what it happens as... Um, it, it's if, if we have to name something that is 
the nature of things, I will call it consciousness. I think it's the best English word for it. Um, it's not necessarily because it is right, but I don't think there's a better word for it than that, given where society is now. Mm. And I'm just getting to some fun and interesting questions now, if you don't mind, because these are things that happen to come up on our discussions on Instagram. We have a very engaged audience and a few questions that mm -hmm. I would want to put to you as well mm -hmm. that have come through. So one is, uh, what about much before any of us were here? What mm -hmm. was the state of everything when there was nobody to record? I think you've, you've heard the analogy of if a tree falls in a jungle and there's no one there, mm -hmm. is there a sound? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think there's such a thing as much before any of us here. And let me clarify that. Of course, if we're talking about Earth, if we're talking about the story of evolution, if we're talking about a particular timeline, of course, there was a time before which there was a time before Earth was here, for example, about 14 billion or so years ago. Mm. But that is Earth. That isn't one of out of how many billions upon billions at the minimum of what we call inhabitable planets based on our meager understanding of what life is even, right? So if you look at the assumptions built into this, I, I don't believe in some time that, that exists prior to what I'm calling as consciousness, not individual consciousness, not, you know, earth human based personal consciousness, which is which are all the specifiers that are not indicated when we usually talk about consciousness. But I think the very nature of things, the very nature of what we call universe is a kind of consciousness. And so before we were here as humans, okay, yes, but that's just us as humans. How many other life forms? Before all life forms, okay, but I'm saying that the very nature of things is consciousness. So is that not life? Is that not alive in some sense, right? If what we call death is merely the stoppage of the body, which in, a, in, a, in the most precise sense, what we call death is simply the stoppage of the body, right? The electricity stops moving in the body, the heart stops beating, the lungs stop moving, the reflexes stop, and that is what we call death. That doesn't mean that life itself ends. It just means that that birth ends. And when you take this view, the idea of before we were here, if you take this expansive view beyond just our species, um, I don't think that assumption really holds. So again, as I said, the three minds are here right now. The three minds, in a sense, have always been here. The first mind fluctuates in and out, and that's where the story of time lives. The story of time and the experience of time lives in the first mind, whereas the second and third mind are beyond this, and they are always here. Mm. And interestingly, you mentioned about other life forms or other species, intelligent or non-intelligent, mm -hmm. just looking at how far we've moved, because a few years ago, anyone who spoke about this particular topic or even subscribed to the fact that there are other life forms or there could be other life forms, especially from your field as an academic, mm -hmm. that was not a very popular stance to take, right? It probably, even now, is not a very popular science stance to take, but I think there has been enough uh, not just media reports, but now governments and government officials talking about it, at least here in the United States, I'm guessing probably in other countries too, that, that more people are taking it seriously. More people that are considered credible are taking it seriously, right? We, we tend to give credibility to those experts in certain fields with certain degrees. 
And so when they start talking about it, we say, hey, this is credible. And so, yes, it, before it certainly was not everybody, anybody who talked about unidentified aerial phenomena or about life in, in other places. It was just speculation or they were crazy. They didn't know what they were talking about. But slowly that's changing. But, you know, if you look at if you look at any indigenous culture, certainly if you look at the Puranas in India, right, they've been describing mm -hmm. other civilizations, other worlds, other beings, other technologies, I mean, forever, right? This is not new and it's not unique to India. In, in all ind indigenous cultures, there are some stories like this. But again, once we start to turn towards a more particulate mind, once we start to kind of configure ourselves as the first mind, now the realm of perception and the realm of thinking becomes narrowed to the particulate world, which by the way, is why the quantum and quantum physics is so fascinating now and so popular, right? Because it is the bridge between the part particulate world and the non-local world. So everybody's, everybody's all about the quantum now. Mm. But this, this knowledge, this non-local type of intelligence and consciousness, perception, all of this has been around in indigenous cultures forever. So it's just that because of our first mind thinking, we've shielded it out. We haven't been able to make sense of it because of the narrow-mindedness. But as we are starting to kind of wake up from that, we're starting to see more and more of what's happening. Mm. And would you think that somebody living in, for example, uh, 3000, the year 3000 or 3000 BC, mm -hmm. would they have been experiencing the world? I'm not talking about the technology, but I'm talking about their perception of the world the mm -hmm. same way or somewhat because 3000 years ago is not that far, but it can be the same way as we do because, uh, and there's a reason I'm saying that if you look at what we depict as art or geometry uh, seems to be very defined today. Mm -hmm. And that could be because that's the way we think about it inwardly now. We've become more individual. Mm -hmm. But if you look at art from those those times, mm -hmm. you kind of they would they would depict something where if it was a bird, you would get the picture, but they would not specify the details. Right. I think that's true. I think the the way the mind expresses in different cultures at different times is different. Uh, but again, this is you know three thousand BCs very specific, like we're talking about, um, uh, you're talking about the earth population, you're talking about probably like the, the popular notions in society, right? We're not talking about everybody because in every society and every time there are outliers. And, mm -hmm. you know, none of the things I'm saying now are new, right? The same, the same knowledge has always been there. And people have thought these same exact thoughts, these same exact constructs surely before and surely will happen again. So again, going back to the idea of advancement, in a sense, we're advanced, but let's also understand the sense in which we are not advanced, right? Many mm -hmm. of these prior cultures have had the same insights, the same understanding. It may not have been expressed in the same way. Um, they may not have expressed it on paper in the same way. It is not that everything that we experience, we put on paper, because even to put it on paper, there has to be some kind of externalization. Right? And it may be that the way in which we externalize experience, which is what we call drawing on paper, may mm. not be as representative as it is today. So art might change, but it does not mean that the experience of those people necessarily changed. So mm. I think all of this has to be considered. True. 
And you mentioned something earlier that was interesting when you spoke about death and it is the seizure of the human body, right? That That's that's what you said. What do you think happens post that? So after death, this body, which is essentially a representation of our current tendencies, right? The current tendencies, whatever they are, are represented through the body. So if, if, I have a tendency to lift and move things and get obstacles out of my way. My body will accordingly be big. The muscles will be developed, right? If I have a tendency to read and understanding things, then my body will often find itself in in front of books, right? Or in front of people who are saying things like this. So the body follows the mind or the body aggregates itself in relationship with the mind. So when there's a disaggregation of the body, which is one way to see death or a stoppage of the body, then that association or that, that function has run its course. It doesn't mean that the mind stops. And here we're talking about the first mind, the individual mind. It doesn't mean that the first mind stops. The first mind simply continues until it has exhausted all of those such tendencies. And to the extent that it continues and the extent to which those tendencies are there, another quote unquote, body will aggregate. I'm saying quote unquote body because the mind itself is a body. It's just that from our first mind perspective, we think mind is mind and body is body. No, the mind itself is a kind of body. It's just a different kind of body. So the physicalized aspect of it, as it loses function, as it loses relevance in its expression, will fall off. That mind continues and as it needs to, will physicalize itself in another way, in another environment. And does that, uh, does that uh, point towards rebirth? Yes, from, from the stories of our culture and how we describe it, right? This kind of mm. world culture that would be called reincarnation um, or rebirth, which I think is, these are loaded terms. I wish we could simply look at these and understand what these mean, you know, rather than using loaded words. But yes, if, we're, if incarnation is being in flesh, is what it literally means, then yes, there will be another fleshy casing, let's say, mm. um, for the expression of these tendencies. Right. And I guess because people are afraid of, of what happens after death, or you, most of us are afraid of the unknown, mm. that's where all fear comes from, right? Because that's one thing, if you go back to any civilization right to this day, seems mm. to be one constant fear. Yeah, I think death is a common cause of fear again the question has to arise of what death is it's it's really the the fear of losing everything that we know right the fear of losing the loved ones around me who shape my identity the fear of losing the things around me my my favorite toys my favorite objects you know my favorite locations uh that kind of help me define my identity um the extent to which these define the majority of what we are is the extent to which there will be fear of death, right? These things do define us. I'm not talking about saying that they don't define me, right? I love my family. I love the people around me. You know, I love the activities that I do and I can miss them, right? This is an aspect Mm -hmm. of me that misses them. But when this becomes the dominant experience, then there is some kind of distortion that happens. And now when I lose that, I feel like I am losing I. I am losing this I-ness. This meanness is going to go away. And then that is where the fear arises. 
But if the identity is aware of this boundary and aware of it as a medium of expression rather than as a finality and as an independent reality, then accordingly, the experience and relationship with death changes. Mm. And I don't know what I'm quoting is true or not, but apparently the experience someone goes through immediately after figuring out that they've just lost their mobile phone is in some way is some way uh, resembles that of a heart attack and you'd be the right person to tell us because mobile phones have become an extension of us, right? And so that first tense, <laughs> that first three minutes of panic is yeah. you have lost something that's part of you. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining now I'm people who I've seen having heart attacks and mobile phone loss. There is some similarity that I can see. Um, and it makes sense, yes. Um, but I, I would say... A, a bad, bad heart attack has a has maybe a, a solemnness to it that is not there when losing a yeah. mobile phone. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Anup, I know you've spent a, a lot of time with us here. Is there something interesting that you are currently working on, or some thoughts that are going through your mind that you have not yet uh, put down on paper, but you're just playing around with certain thoughts that you would want to throw to us here because our listeners I'm sure are engrossed but would like to know a little bit more from you because you may have so many things in your mind and I may not have the ability to to bring all that out so mm-hmm. would you want to y- use some time to just tell us what what you think of generally when you're sitting down and you're, you're thinking alone and there's nothing happening what thoughts run through your mind that's when I'm sitting alone there probably aren't well it depends it depends on if I'm if I'm thinking about a particular topic to respond to somebody, but if not, I'm, they're probably not thoughts running through the mind. In terms of which thoughts that I am having right now, I've been thinking lately because of some Twitter conversations. I've been thinking about diagnosis and mental health and mental illness, and I brought this up a little bit earlier before how you know the phrasing of mental health and mental illness. I think is problematic because of how limited our understanding of mind is, right? If you think about, uh, we don't talk about physical health or physical illness, right? We just call it health or illness. We don't say, oh, you know, there's a problem with my knee. I have a physical health problem. No, it's, it's just a problem, right? Or there's a problem with my left shoulder. I have a physical illness. No, we just, we just say it's an illness or it's a problem. But when we talk about mind, we always qualify it. It's a mental health problem, right? It's a mental mental illness. But I think we are going too far. This has become kind of accepted parlance, I think. I think we need to stop and, and look at this closely. Because if we don't know what the mind is, then we should be very careful with our words. So, yes, we can have problems. We can have difficulties. We can suffer. All of those are part of the experience of being human. But once we go beyond that and start to frame it as a mental health and, or mental illness problem, I think in most cases, we are going beyond our expertise as a society. And when we talk about diagnosing such things, we have to be open to seeing that the diagnosis we give in these cases in particular, they're basically ways of thinking about experience. So when we say something like depression as a diagnosis, or schizophrenia as a diagnosis, 
this is basically a way of thinking of certain experiences, right? That is, that is based in simply how we choose to think about things, right? So if, if I'm diagnosing, for example, pneumonia, pneumonia is also a construct. It's a way of thinking, but it's based in certain biomedical findings, including maybe rails in the lungs, maybe tachypnea, maybe breathing fast, maybe the temperature is elevated. It's based on some biomedical science, right? Science, S-I-G-N-S, right? And also S-C-I-E-N-C-E. It's the diagnosis based on that. But in many of these cases for what we call mental health diagnosis, although there are certainly biomedical associations, the diagnosis is not based in that, right? It's based in simply a way of thinking. Like somebody has the experience of not eating, not communicating with others. They have low energy. They're not interacting, uh, uh, low inspiration. You know, they're not inspired to do anything. You have several of these together for a certain period of time and it's affecting their life. So the way we think about that is as depression. But I think we need to open up our way of looking at these and look at other cultures, other systems, other ways of framing our experience beyond that of mental health and mental illness and see if other ways of framing it might help us better to navigate these experiences. And there's no better time to do it now, right? Because the number of cases that we are uh, we are hearing, or the number of ca- reported cases, seem to be on the rise. As and I'm talking specifically about uh, uh, young people going through this. Is this something that is is talked about or discussed in your field as well, or is it something that you have thought about, or you have a, uh, or you have you have something to tell us on why this is happening in the current scenario? Why do we have say compared to about maybe 20 years ago, is it the, obviously, uh, the, the first answer you get is, it's because of the internet, it's because of people not being connected anymore with their group of family, I think, around you. Yeah, you know, in, in terms of why, there, there are innumerable reasons. I don't think that there's one causal factor, but in terms of how I think it's beneficial to look at it, I think right now we tend to localize the problem. Again, going back to the first mind construct, the first mind way of seeing the world, Mm. the entire first mind economy, right? We tend to localize the problem in an individual. So we say, hey, the problem is with this person, right? They're not thinking the right way, or they're not doing this, or, you know, there's their neurotransmitter is off, right? We localize the problem there. Because that is the way that we're taught to see the world and engage with the world. And then what we want to do is give an antidote for that particular kind of thinking, rather than seeing that this, what we call a person, is in a sense an ecosystem, right? What we call a person is an ecosystem of ideas, of emotions, of experiences, of perceptions, of relationships, of engagements, right? And ultimately of births and deaths, frankly. But if we're not ready to go there, we can leave that out for now. But this, what we call a person is an ecosystem. So then let's look at the ecosystem. What is the world around, the, around them like? And again, look at, you know, one person that has mountains of food, the next person has no food. One person has three houses, the other person has no home. And so when we have these societal factors and when the messaging is to go on getting new things to kind of avoid that uncertainty, to avoid that fear, to avoid that difficulty, to avoid the fact of these injustices that are in society, then 
naturally it's going to be felt by the individual, but it doesn't mean that the problem is in the individual. And that is, that is what it's being conflated now. And that's happening more and more. It's just in our society, it's the productivity society, right? So now we all have email so we can be reached 24 seven. We have text message so we can be 24 seven. It probably wasn't like that maybe a few decades ago, right? When it's like, well, you're, you're at work, maybe nine to five, at least for most people. You don't have to check your email at home. You don't have to respond to text immediately. Now, sometimes if I don't respond to an email, I got to follow up the next day, right? To follow up to the email. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the entire messaging is moving towards this focusing strictly on the individual, focusing strictly on things. And as a result, there is going to be greater um, confusion, less clarity, less ease. And that is getting kind of co-opted as the story of mental health versus mental illness, right? The good guy and the bad guy are fighting each other, mental health, mental illness. Mm -hmm. I think we have to put these terms to rest until we actually understand what's going on and address the underlying factors. Mm. And I think we've built this culture or we've, we've built our society around this current meritocracy that we talk about and we've, we've given it our own, we've given it our own standards. So there is always going to be somebody who is based on those standards and based on that functionality or productivity is going to be more productive than somebody else. So I, I honestly see this as a practically a huge problem to be solved because if we are talking about equal distribution of anything, then as far as and as long as there is some form of hierarchy, we are always going to struggle with that, right? Yes, I think I think hierarchy is okay if we are seeing the fuller picture. I mean, there's no doubt that um, a person, you know, uh, let's say an artist, a painter, has skills that are better than mine. And there is a hierarchy in painting. They will paint better than me, right? So I have skills in emergency medicine that may be better than the next person. So there is a hierarchy there. So the hierarchies, I mean, we can acknowledge that there are different skills, different abilities, different talents, but the value for being human, right? The value for the planet, mm. the value for life, there, there's no hierarchy. So I think we have, to, we have to see that hierarchies are what we superimpose based on our values. And as long as we understand them as superimpositions and as useful superimpositions, it's okay. Where it's not useful, we should get rid of them. Mm. And probably that should be one subject that cuts across all disciplines. So irrespective of what you want to do in life or which direction you take, or you want to be a physician or you want to be a, a doctor or you want to be a technician, but there should be one common subject or one common field that irrespective, everybody needs to pass before they move. Oh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true in education. I think to call it loosely self-knowledge has to be taught. And mm -hmm. self-knowledge, you know, this can be taught from birth. At birth, it doesn't need to be taught because the kids are just being themselves. But at some point, the, the extent to which they are aware <clears throat> will be the extent to which the adults around them are. And adults teach children by virtue of what adults give attention to. They teach children to also give attention to the same things. So it's not something you say. It's something you are. And the way that you are will be the way that kind of kids pick that up to. Now, kids are 
their own person as well. It doesn't mean that that's strictly the factor, but that's where it begins. And when we get to school, we should spend time. You know, there should be time at the maybe the beginning of every day, maybe the end of every day, where we where you kind of get together, and you spend some time just feeling what it's like to be you. Right. Every child, until they're given new constructs on top of this, because for adults this might sound strange. What do you mean? Feel what it's mm-hmm. like to be you. How do I do that? You know, when do I do that? Where do I start? Where do I put my attention? But if you tell a child at age three, four, or five, like you know, feel what it's like to be you. They'll know. They'll know what to do. And the key is don't forget that. Don't forget that skill. So practice that and realize it, it, will, be, it will be a self-knowledge that kind of dawns that everything that we learn actually happens in that, feel, that field of what it's like to be me, right? To me, me in quotes. This me has different layers to it. And according to which layer this me resides as, the world also the world of objectivity, etc., also accordingly changes. This will be natural knowledge that happens because we're not talking about anything fancy here. It appears very fancy. It appears esoteric and mystical and spiritual and philosophical and poetic only from the first mind perspective. Mm. Because of and because of differences in in people's economic status in different countries and and first world and third world countries, people growing up probably in a third world country. Are, are are going to be uh, are going to be talking about what they have, and that's the way they're going to be looking at how they get through life for the moment. So by the time we get through this, somebody as a young child knows that uh, it's not going to come so easy for them. So he's got to keep fighting the the for it, as compared to somebody that grows up in a place where there is enough and and everything for everyone. Yes, yeah, certainly. We have to be aware of the difference between seeing and knowing and doing, right? The action is going to be different in different places. Mm. So in a in a place where it, that is functioning in a way in which there is more social support, in which relationships are valued, in which people are given the time and space they need to develop in their own way, in addition to contributing to the society, then the actions needed there are going to be different than in a place which is increasingly common in the world which is that you know we have to do what somebody else is saying mostly even if the work is not fulfilling and there's little time to pursue the things that are most meaningful for us and the stories that we're told are limiting stories about our nature and of the world right so in if we contrast those two societies the actions needed in those two societies will be different and we have to be careful not to say that you know just because there is some underlying nature to this then therefore i'm not going to do anything therefore i don't need to do anything it's all the same this kind of you know blanket whitewashing of everything that's going on there mm-hmm. are different i mean the first second and third mind are different layers of identity and different layers in which the actions themselves will be different and so we have to choose the level at which we engage so to all our listeners that have been listening to this conversation as we promised at the beginning this is a very interesting subject and anoop has been extremely patient and very informative in going through this with us but as we said this is only the first episode and it gets even more exciting on our second episode so we look forward to having you 
join us once that episode is released which should be within the next week and thank you once again for listening to us and all the support that has been coming in to Indian Genes keep that going goodbye and take care इस हब हॉपर ओरिजिनल को सुनने के लिए आपका शुक्रिया अगर आप भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करना चाहते हैं तो हब हॉपर स्टूडियो वेबसाइट पे रजिस्टर करें और एक मिनट के अंदर अंदर अपना खुद का पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करें यही नहीं स्टूडियो देता है आपको पूरी आजादी कहीं भी कभी भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करने की सिर्फ तीन आसान स्टेप्स में तो साथ में अपना पॉडकास्ट शुरू करने के लिए तैयार जस्ट हॉप ऑन हब हॉपर सिंपली कॉन्टेंट